Let us turn now to consider words you will find in the chapter we read in the first epistle of Paul to Timothy, the first chapter, and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. There are, I'm sure, texts in the Bible which have a particular appeal to a particular people. And I must confess that this is one such text which appeals to myself greatly. I was told, whether it's true or not, that my predecessor here made a point of preaching at least once a year on that text verily verily I say unto you unless a man be born again except a man be born again he cannot enter into the kingdom of God because he felt that a sermon on regeneration had to be preached at least once a year and I make no apology for turning to a text from which I know I preached some two years ago because uh, I think it is one of these texts to which uh, we could turn quite easily at least once a year because it contains so much. It has been referred to as the text or the verse which incorporates the whole gospel in a, in a single verse. You know that Martin Luther called it one of the little Bibles. I think it was C.H. Spurgeon who said that it reminded him of a, something like a hydraulic ram compressing together into a short compass a tremendous amount of material. Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus rather, came into the, came into the world to save sinners. Now you can see quite easily how that is a summing up of all that the gospel has to say to us. And Paul here introduces it with these words, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. And then we look at the content of that saying. It tells us who came into the world? Christ Jesus. It tells us how he came into the world. The willingness with which he came. It tells us where he came to. He came into the world. That has its own special significance. And uh, it tells us why he came into the world. He came into the world to save. And it tells us 
who he came into the world to save. He came into the world to save sinners. And having presented the gospel in that short compass, Paul, as is his wont, finds himself caught up in that glorious theme of whom he says, I am chief. Before looking at these uh, thoughts uh, briefly, let me just mention to you the meaning of these introductory words of his. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. This letter was written roughly about 30 to 35 years uh, after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And for the first 35 years of the Christian era, the apostles had uh, gone to various regions and had proclaimed the gospel message entrusted to them by Christ. The gospel had been blessed, had been received by Jew and particularly by the Gentiles. And as a result of the persecution that broke upon the Christian church, the gospel had spread even wider afield. And for 35 years, the message was being proclaimed. And it seems as though in the course of time there evolved in the Christian communities a kind of a oral catechism whereby there was, there was embodied in a question and answer forum some of the great truths of the Christian faith. As you know, they had no books as you and I have books. They had no theological books, no books on doctrine, no written Bible as you and I have it, no completed Word of God. And the church was dependent to a large extent upon what was able to commit to memory of the truth that was being preached. And that was, these were the sayings that sprang up throughout the Christian church at that time. There would, been a, there would have been quite a number of sayings. Paul in his pastoral epistles, that is the epistles to Timothy and Titus, quotes five of the sayings which were current, at the, which were current in the Christian church. And this is one of them. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And of this, that saying, he says this, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. He tells us that, and this was nothing new, and we're glad that this happened in the first 35 years of the Christian era, because it encourages us today. He said that this, he says that this saying was, these sayings were being assailed. The truths that the Christian church was teaching were being attacked. And people were trying to destroy them. People were trying to reject them and people were trying to ridicule them. So you see, there's nothing new under the sun. The truths that the Christian church presents today, they are being attacked as well. 
People will always try to destroy the truth as it is in Jesus. But they will not succeed. And he says, this is a faithful saying. This saying has stood the test of time. And that was Paul writing 35 years after the gospel was first proclaimed. How much more can we say it today? Nearly 2,000 years after that, this is still a faithful saying. This still stands true. This has still not been destroyed by the enemies of the Christian church. And this saying will never be destroyed. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's at the very heart of the teaching of the Christian church. And what's more, not only is it faithful, not only has it stood the test of time, not only has it survived triumphantly, but it is worthy all acceptation. This is worth your acceptation and mine. It is worth your acceptance. It is worthy of your belief. It is worthy of your trust. It is worthy of your confession. And it is worthy of your defense that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as I said, if that was the case 30 years after it was first preached, much more is it the case now, because it has stood far more testing and far more trials and far more uh, assaults than it had stood up to the time at which Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Now then, what is at the heart of this saying? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It tells us in the first place who came. Christ Jesus. Now these words are pregnant with meaning themselves. The names that were given to our Lord. You know what the word Christ or rather the name Christ is the name that designates Christ in his official capacity as the one who was sent by God into the world and who as the sent of God was equipped by the Spirit of God for the mission for which he came into the world. He himself in one of the first public utterances that he made at Nazareth, he himself quoting the Old Testament said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me or he has sent me, he has Christed me, he has made me the Christ to preach good tidings to the poor. This word speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ equipped and qualified for the great work of redemption for which he came into the world. He was the Son of God. All that God was, Christ was. We saw that here a fortnight ago. This, as you know, is a teaching which has received a lot of attention in recent years and many people are attacking this great truth at the heart of the teaching of the Christian church and they will always attack it. They attacked it in Paul's day. They've attacked it through the ages and they will attack it to the end of time and they will say Christ was not God. And yet the Bible asserts categorically that he was. He said himself that he was. 
and you either submit yourself to the authority of the word of God or you become the authority yourself over the word of God and you relegate the word in the interest of your own advanced intellect you relegate that word to a place far below the place that you ascribe to your own understanding but we know of course that that's a completely wrong attitude to adopt to the word of God if you are going to be a Christian at all the one thing that you must have in your life or else your life will be a disaster the one thing that you must have in your life is the word of the living God exercising authority over every area of your life over your understanding and you bring your understanding to the authority and to the life that truth and that truth states that Christ who was in this world was none other than God this said the great Scottish theologian Rabbi Duncan this world is a divinity visited world God in Christ was in this world Emmanuel God with us Christ the sent of God and that Christ became in this world Jesus and you know that if Christ is the name which designates him in his official capacity as the one who was sent by God into the world the name Jesus is the name which is ascribed to the human nature which our Lord took when he came into the world even as you look back through the Old Testament you will find this that those occasions in which God manifested himself to men God had to take a form in which people could recognize him and see him you see the confession of faith states that that's not the confession the Bible says God is spirit and you cannot see a spirit and the only way in which you can see a spirit is for that spirit to take a form by which he will become visible so that for example Moses at Horeb saw the burning bush that was God appearing in the form of a burning bush or perhaps in the form of a fire that did not consume the bush and uh, there were uh, what we call theophanies there were these appearances of God in the Old Testament to men and women he took a form in which he was recognizable they saw but the only way they could see him was by him taking a form that they could behold but in the course of time God the Son took this form as we saw and again a fortnight ago he took to himself a human nature and the angel announced to Joseph that he was to call the babe who was to be born to Mary thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins that is the name that is always attributed to the son of God in the world ask a child who was Jesus and they'll probably tell you this Jesus was the baby who was born in Bethlehem and so he was Jesus was a person who went about doing good healing people so he was Jesus was a person who was 
arrested and crucified on the cross. And so he was. And Jesus was a person who was laid in the grave and who rose from the dead and who ascended to heaven. So he was. But remember that Jesus was God in our nature. God in our nature. God became man. And in that form he took to himself the name of Jesus. That he might become the saviour of the world. Jesus Christ, in other words, is fully divine. And Jesus Christ is fully man. Christ Jesus. Now this is something which is the very heart of the gospel. The saviour who is presented to us is none other than God in our nature. And you've heard what the late revered Bishop John Ryle said about this. I thank God, he said, that my Saviour is not just God. If he were God alone, I wouldn't dare come into his presence. And I thank God that my Saviour is not just man alone. If he were man alone, I couldn't dare trust him. But I thank God that my Saviour is the God-man into whose presence I can come with confidence and in whom I can rest my soul's salvation. One in whom I can trust Christ Jesus, God-man, the sent into the world in our nature. And then he goes on to say this, Christ Jesus came into the world. Now you may say that's not very significant, but it is. This verb is tremendously significant. He came. It emphasizes the willingness with which he came. That is why it is totally ridiculous to speak in this way. Oh, wasn't it wonderful that God let his son come? It wasn't wonderful at all. It was wonderful that God sent his son into the world. God didn't allow his son to come. God sent him. And the son didn't come reluctantly. The son came willingly. Willingly. Lo, I come, he says, to do thy will. That was his meat and his drink, as he said, to do the will of him that sent me. He came into this world as the one who was sent by God. As the one who was chosen from all eternity. This is what the Bible is full of. Chosen from all eternity to come. The one who in the covenant said to God from all eternity, I will come. And who in the fullness of time came willingly. Came willingly. Conceived by the power of the, of, of the Holy Ghost and, and the woman of the Virgin Mary. Born in Bethlehem. In the course of time. And who in this world went about doing the will of God. He came as one who was perfectly willing to come. And one who, while he was in this world, loved the will of the Father. And one who was obedient to that will even unto death. And not only death, but even the death of the cross. It was no ordinary death that he died. He died my death and he died your death. He went to that place where you and I are. And where is it? What is the death that Jesus Christ discovered you and me to be in? He found us in this death where we were cut off from the, from the fellowship and the favour 
and the life and the love of God. That was the abyss into which Jesus went in dying. And it was from that abyss that he cried out. It was from that hell that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He came willingly and went willingly to that extent. That is the heart of the gospel. Christ Jesus dying willingly for sinners. And then thirdly, where did he come to? He came into the world to die for sinners. Now you remember what this was a saying. You see, it was bits and pieces that were put together from various sources. And as some people point out, and I think very correctly, this is very obviously taken from the writings of John himself. It was John of all the apostles who emphasized this teaching and who quoted Jesus, I am the light of the world. I am come into the world. Not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. The life was in the world, and the world knew it not. That's John. And what does the word world mean? It's a word which, is, which has deep ethical significance. It isn't just that Jesus came from heaven, from that place, into this place. It's far more than that. Jesus came from heaven into the world into a sinful, evil, unholy, antagonistic environment. He came into a place that didn't want him, into a place that preferred darkness to light, into a place that preferred evil to holiness. That's the world that you and I live in. It is still the same world, except that it is worse than it was in Jesus' day. Worse. And anyone with half an eye will have to accept that. He is a fool indeed who thinks that this world is getting better. It's getting worse with every day. I'm sure that it never entered your own mind. 25 years ago that some churches in Glasgow today would have to hold their prayer meetings in midweek in the afternoon before darkness falls for fear that people may be attacked and mugged going to prayer meetings at night. You wouldn't have believed that, would you, 25 years ago? Those of you who knew Glasgow then, would you have believed it? No. And it's not the only city in which that is true. See, there were people at the beginning of the century who thought that this world is getting better and better and better. Then two great events happened to shatter their illusions. Two world wars. But has that shattered the illusion of people? Oh no, there are still some idiots who think that this world is getting better. Yes, there are. And one shouldn't apologize for calling them that. After all, Paul, writing to, to the people of his day, said this. There are, people who, there are people, he said, who consider the gospel to be foolishness. 
And do you know the meaning of the word foolishness? Moronic. There are, in other words, morons in the world today, he said. And that's their attitude to the gospel. They prove that they are that bad, their attitude to the gospel. I'm not saying, he said, I'm not making them that. They're making themselves that by their attitude to the truth. And you and I, some people may think that this world is getting better, it's getting far worse. Evil is abroad in the world. Darkness is increasing. Sin is having more and more sway, even in our own land. Oh, yes. And the government seems to be powerless to arrest its progress. They try this and they try that and they try everything. The church suggests various means. And I would say this to you. That every single one of them, at least as far as public utterance are concerned, are hopelessly missing the mark. Because what you have to deal with it's the problem of sin in the world. That's why the world is getting worse. Oh, I know that there are wonderfully enlightened people who don't believe that sin should be in the dictionary, nor should the word evil. Oh, no, I know that. But you see, you cannot obliterate that from the Oxford Dictionary because you cannot get rid of it from your own life. That's why. Because you and I are sinners. And that's the root problem of society. Sin. It expresses itself in various ways. And I don't think that society has ever found ways of expressing sin in such diverse forms as it has found today. The world is not getting better. The world is getting worse, as the Bible says it will, hastening towards its destruction. Don't forget that. This is what the Bible says. You are not to think in terms of looking for a world which is going to get better before you leave it. The world is evil. It hates God and it doesn't want God. It pours contempt on God. It is against God. And listen to that place that Jesus came, the light of the world. The light in the dark. And all the evil, and this is a thought for you, all the evil and all the darkness and all the ungodliness of this world poured its filthy streams into the eyes and the ears of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. In the same way as you and I are confronted with it. You've got eyes and you've got ears. You see things and you hear things and you wish that you hadn't either seen them or heard them, but they're there. And you remember that the Lord had eyes and the Lord had ears. While he was in this evil world and all the darkness of this world poured its torrents through these channels that the Lord, these human channels that the Lord had taken to himself because he was very man, or very man he was Jesus in this world. And you can just imagine. People say, ah, oh, you shouldn't present a picture of Jesus as a man of sorrows and a quintal grief. You present a picture of Jesus while he's in this world as a happy man. Man was always smiling and eh, having a laugh with people and wearing a badge maybe. Smile, God loves you. Things aren't half as bad as you think. That's the kind of person you should make Jesus out to be, a super optimist in a world of evil and darkness. Oh no, my friend. 
That's not the Bible's picture of Jesus. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he couldn't have been anything else because he was holy, harmless, undefiled in a, in a God-hating, evil environment. The world was visited by the Son of God. And I think this is the reason why Paul uses this word so that you and I will ask the question, why then did he come into this place? And he gives the answer, to save sinners. To save sinners. Or, as it is put in the original, sinners to save. He came into this world to deal with the people who were making the world what it was. Sinners. What's wrong with the world? Someone was asked once. I am, he replied. What's wrong with the world that you live in? You are. What's wrong with your environment, with your home life? What's wrong at work? You are. And if you were a better person than you are, your home and your community and your place of work would be a far better place. That's the teaching of the Lord. He came into this world to deal with sinners. You see, people's talk so ridiculously about the, the, the reason for his mission. Oh, he came to teach people. He came to give them an example and whatnot. No. He came to deal with sinners. The coming of our Lord is rooted in sin. There is no answer apart from the sin of man for the incarnation, that is, for the coming of our Lord and our nation into the world. It is rooted in the sin of man. He came into this world sinners to save. And that is why the gospel is a message only for sinners. It has nothing to say to the good person, to the righteous. For the simple reason that there are no such people, there is none righteous. No, not one. And if you're sitting here tonight thinking that you're a cut above the rest, well, my friend, the gospel has nothing to say to you. If you think that you're holier than anybody else and you don't need this, you better leave this place of worship. There's no message here for you. But if you're a sinner, the Bible has something to say to you. It has to say to you that Christ came into the world just because of you. Sinner. To save. And this is the final thing. Why? He came into the world sinners. To save. Notice this now. He didn't come into the world to make the world a better place so that people could enjoy their sin. Oh no. I was reading some time ago an American theologian who was writing a on the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, uh, when the son, he said, found himself in difficulties in the far off land, he found himself in a time of famine and the money had run out. He was in desperate need. And he thought about his father at home. What did he say? Did he take up the phone and ring his dad and say, Dad, I'm in a bit of bother here. Would you uh, send me a postcard or write a poem to make me feel a bit better? No, he said. When that man thought of the father, there was only one thing he could do make his way back home to the Father. You see, Jesus didn't come into this world to make the world a better place for you so that you could enjoy your sinful existence in it. He came into this world to save you from it. That's the point. 
And this is the thrust of the gospel. It is to save people from sin that Jesus came into the world. Not to make it a better place for... By, by all means, the Christian church is to strive to better the social circumstances in which people find themselves. The Christian church is to strive to eradicate social injustice and racial injustice. It has, it must become involved in the world. And it must try to ease the burden of poor people in the world. I say that, of course it has. It has a social conscience, it has a social responsibility towards its fellow men. The Christian church has, as government has, in a so-called Christian society. It must strive to uh, eliminate these injustices where they appear. It must act in compassion towards the masses. And I feel myself that there is any element at all that is sadly missing in the attempts that are made today at all levels of society to meet the needs of men. It is the element of compassion. Compassion. Of course the church must be compassionate. But the church must never lose sight of this. That the great end for which Christ came into the world is to save sinners from their sin. And this, I don't like taking politics into the pulpit. I, I have never made it my practice. But at the same time, I think that the church in presenting the gospel must seek to lead people and direct people and challenge people. And uh, if there is one noticing in the messages that come out from people who become more involved in the social circumstances of men than with their moral circumstances, it is this. You never hear a note of the thrust of the gospel that Christ is the saviour of sinners. And if a Christian man is going to be a politician, if a minister is going to enter the realm of politics, he must never ever forget that this world was visited by a greater than he. And that that greatest person of all, while he was in this world, was involved supremely with men and women, boys and girls, to save them from the guilt and the power of their sin. And he who sent these men and women, boys and girls, restored into the community so that they would act as the light of the world and the salt of the world. A man cannot act as the light of the world or the salt of the world till first of all his relationship with God is put right. And that's the preeminent thing about save. If it means anything, it means this. If I were to ask you tonight, what does this word mean? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What does it mean? Well, in the first place it means this. Because you're a sinner, your relationship with God is wrong. And the first thing that must happen in your life 
is that your relationship with God must be put right. And it can only be put right through faith in Christ as a saviour. That's the first point. You can try to reform your life, change your life, direct your life, educate yourself, acquire more knowledge, and so on. My friend, you're starting at the wrong end of the stick. Get right with God. That's priority number one. To be saved means your relationship with God has to be put right. And then it means that you are brought into the fellowship of God, into the favour of God. The life and the love and the power of God flows into the heart of a saved sinner whose relationship is put right. He comes under the authority of God, the sway of God. He is led by God, directed by God, challenged by God, saved daily by God. He's a sinner who's confronted with a sin every day. He can never come to God and say, Lord, I'm great, I'm good. I'm the best in the community, I'm the best in this house. I think you should give me far more than I've got. I deserve it all. That's not the language of the saved. The saved sinner comes as a sinner every day to be saved. We are, says Paul, being saved daily. Or in the words of Jesus, a Christian, he says, is a person who comes to me daily denies himself daily, takes up his cross daily, follows me daily. To be saved means that you come thankfully to God, that there is a saviour to whom you can come. It means that you come with all your sin, with all your defilement, with all your pollution, and with all your unfitness to the only saviour that you know of. There is no other name given under heaven among men, whereby we might be saved. This is what it's all about. Christ saves sinners from their sin. And I would make bold to say this, that if the Christian church and the leaders of the Christian church at home and abroad, in Scotland, England, Ireland and South Africa, if the leaders of the Christian church stood up and presented the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ to lost sinners more and more, then their circumstances, the circumstances of their hearers, I believe, would alter for the good. If these men who stand up and are able to speak to thousands, if only instead of fostering the worst passions in man, if they would only present the saviour of sinners to man, what a transformation it would bring about in their lives. And you and I should pray that men of God would be found in circumstances, in situations of influence and authority, who would go out with the gospel of his love and of his grace, and not with a political message to the masses. This is the thrust of the Bible. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But you know, don't think of the moment about Ireland or England or South Africa or any other part of Scotland. You think about yourself tonight as a sinner to whom this message comes. Christ Jesus saves people like you. And you ask yourself the question, has your relationship with Christ been changed? 
with God been changed? Has your life been touched by his grace? Have you been rescued from your own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and your own aim, your own opinion of your own goodness and your righteousness? Have you been confronted with your own hell-deservedness? Have you come face to face with the reality that you're a hopelessly lost sinner and that you've no one to turn to? Have you been confronted with that reality in your life? Well, my friend, this is what you need under the gospel. So that through that gospel you may turn to the only saviour who can rescue you from the guilt and the power and the pollution of your own sin and bring you into a blessed relationship with God the Father from whom you can receive all that is going to enrich your life in this world. Christ Jesus, he said, came into the world to save sinners of whom, he said, I am chief. He could never, ever get over this fact that he was the worst sinner of all. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist minister I referred to earlier, was once preaching in his church in London and he, he was preaching on this text and he said, you know, he said, when I get to heaven, there's no one in heaven who will sing louder than me because there is no one who was more deserving of hell than me and God saved me by his grace. And when he was going out, an old lady took him by the arm and said to him, excuse me, she said, but you said something there tonight that I didn't agree with. Oh, he said, was it just one thing that you didn't agree with? Well, he said, there was one thing I didn't agree with. He said, what was it? You said that when you would get to heaven, that no one there would sing louder than you because of all the people who were saved by the grace of God. You were the greatest wonder of all. Why did I disagree with you? I think I'll sing louder than you because I'm a greater sinner than you. You see, every saved sinner is absolutely convinced that no one was less deserving than he and she. Of all the people, says Paul, who were saved by the Savior, of all the people, to think that I was saved, there was no one, he said, in the world worse than me. He tells in the context, I was a blasphemer, I was injurious, I did everything. He was, he was a party to the murder of men and women because they were Christians. Of course, he was an awful sinner. But who isn't? Are you going to say tonight that you're better than Paul? Oh, you can't. If only people could see into your heart. If only they knew the kind of person you are. If only they knew what you've done and what you've been. If only they knew how far away you've been from God. But my friend, this is the glory of the gospel. It is sinners he came to save. And the word isn't qualified. He doesn't say a young sinner or an old sinner. A bad sinner or one that isn't so bad. There's no such thing as one that isn't so bad. We're all bad sinners. It doesn't say that he came to save someone who went so far. No. Sinners. And it leaves you with a question. Are you a sinner? Oh, if only the spirit of the living God 
would drive these words home to your heart. I see some of you here tonight. My eye from time to time here tonight has rested on some young people. And I see one person here tonight and I don't know if she's heard a word that I've said. May God convict you of your need of a saviour. May you know that you're a sinner. And that the greatest need in your life tonight is Christ as your saviour. And if you find him, you will join with Paul and you will say, you're the worst sinner. And then 35 years from tonight, if God spares you, you will still say with Paul, Christ saved sinners and I am the chief. You see, he doesn't say I was, I am. I am. I wish I had time to ask you a question. I'll ask it. How do you come into the presence of God tonight? As a saint or as a sinner? I'll tell you how you should come. As a sinner. Because heaven's door is closed to anybody else but a sinner who needs a saviour. And if that's your condition tonight, a sinner who needs a saviour, heaven welcomes sinners because Christ came from it to save such and ultimately to bring them perfectly saved into his own glorious presence. May God grant that each one of us may be found there. Let us pray. Bless to us the word of thy grace, applied with power to our souls, we pray thee, and help us to know that thou art near, near to all who call upon thee, and the praise shall be thine forever in Christ. Amen.